The Coram Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you are about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. Our scripture this morning is Philippians chapter 3, verse 16, through chapter 4, verse 1. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join me, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. The word of God for the people of God. Everybody, good morning. It's really good to be with all of you excited to jump, uh, continue to jump into Philippians here this morning. Uh, one thing that as you kind of get to know me or if we spend time together that you'll learn about me is that I love sports and maybe to a fault at times. And one thing that people will say kind of in, in kind of athletics or in sports, and this kind of really applies to many areas of life, they'll say something like this. It's not how you start, it's how you finish. Well, starting, yes, is important. How you finish or how you end, well, is probably even more important. Uh, you know, I can think of several, you know, Major League Baseball teams this year that won well over 100 games, yet did not make it to the World Series. And the two teams that did make it to the World Series this year barely got in, and one of them won the World Series by, by winning like 80 games or something. Or if you could be a college football team that has been on a 29-game winning streak, number one team in the country for the entire regular season, and then lose yesterday, and you're not going to get into the college football playoff today. That's kind of my hot take for this morning. <laughs> so my point is, is that it's not so much how you start, how you end, how you finish matters a ton. You know, and I don't just say that uh, just, just to say that. I mean, we can think of many different examples of how that might, you know, flesh out in life. The reason I've kind of been thinking about this and pondering this for really for the past few months now is really for a lot of personal reasons. Um, a few months ago, I found out that a pastor, friend, mentor that has been near to us, us being my family and I, for many decades, probably since the time I was, you know, late middle school, I think, um, found out three months ago he's no longer married to his wife, and just a complete shock to that news. Just a couple weeks ago, I uh, found out that another mentor and pastor, someone that has known me since I was, you know, probably in the eighth or ninth grade, uh, suddenly, and at least suddenly in my perspective, no longer working, no longer serving as pastor in the church that he was serving at. And so it gets me 
gets me thinking and pondering, what does it mean to finish well? There's an there's a element of reality that we need to wrestle with and, and grasp with, that well, how you begin in life, how you begin even more specifically following Jesus, that matters. I mean, do you count everything as lost for the sake of knowing Christ, to use the language of Paul? I mean, have you turned from your sin and trust in Jesus? All of those things, as far as the beginning of our Christian life, those matter for sure. But consistently, all throughout Scripture, and in particular in the New Testament, what we're going to see today in Philippians 3 is, yes, while the beginning matters, how you end, how you finish well, that matters in many ways even more. And so as we look at Philippians 3, I want you to kind of think with me through this, because this is what I want us to, to think about. All throughout Scripture, we have this idea of, for those who don't finish well, the language often is, they're drifting away. Think about Hebrews 2. But here in Philippians chapter 3 and into the beginning of chapter 4, we have this language, I want you to look at with me, verse uh, 1 of chapter 4, where Paul says this, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, underline this phrase if you can, stand firm. Stand firm. It's repeated language all throughout the New Testament of what it means, what it looks like, the call toward finishing well. And this is what Paul has in mind as he's writing this latter section here, Philippians chapter 3, to, to finish well, to stand firm. I mean, think about where Paul has been or where Paul has taken us earlier in chapter 3. He's told us that the, the gospel is a radical invitation to stake everything on Jesus, that you have to be all in on this, and that you have to realize that Jesus and Jesus alone is the only one who can satisfy all the longings of your heart. And as you begin to work through and live out and walk the Christian life, there's going to be moments and times and seasons where you're going to feel stuck. And Paul had that call last week for us to look, to press on, to look to Jesus. But here this week, Paul has the end in mind. Stand firm. And so I want us to look at this little paragraph here in Philippians 3 in the beginning of chapter 4 here with this understanding, with this kind of question, if you will, in mind. I'll put the question here on the screen. How do we finish well? Or maybe more personally, how do you finish well? And this is the question we want to ponder. Is we just going to work through the text kind of line by line, phrase by phrase, and just see as the Spirit brings to life the things of this text, may the Spirit open our hearts to Better understand, better ponder, better meditate on this idea of how do we, how do you finish well? So let's jump in. Verse 17, Paul writes, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, right off the bat, Paul, we need to understand this. Paul is not being this like arrogant, boastful, prideful person when he says, or imitate me, follow me. He's not saying, hey, my life is perfect. I've got it all figured out. Do what I do. I'm just the best thing that's, you know, walked on planet. Paul is not saying that. We need to kind of keep in mind the context of where Paul has, what Paul has already said. Remember, just even the paragraph right before this. Paul recognizes and says, I have not already obtained this. I, I, I'm not perfect. But I keep pressing on. In other words, Paul is saying he has this self-awareness to recognize that he doesn't have it all figured out. 
He isn't fully conformed into the image of Jesus. So when he says these words at the beginning of verse 17, imitate me, join in imitating me, he's not saying this from a boastful place. He's saying this from a place of recognizing, I have a long way to go. I'm still growing in what it means to follow Jesus. And so it's this kind of example Paul is saying, imitate me, follow me. But notice what else he says at the, the latter half of verse 17. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. In other words, it's not just Paul as the only example. He's not just the only Christian worth imitating or copying. But there's other examples out there, he's saying. There's other people, church in Philippi, that you know, that you have a relationship with, that you're in connection with, and, and follow, Paul says, their example. Imitate them. Now, there's a couple things that I want to kind of drill down on this and kind of dive a little deeper onto this sort of idea or, and this idea of following, where Paul says, follow me or imitate me. A couple things to say on this. First, there's a part of us, at least a part of, you know, many of us that would say, you know, I don't know if I actually want to say that to someone else. I think we get the idea of like, you know, as Christians, it's important to have other people in our lives that we look to, that we, we want to pattern our lives after, that we respect kind of how they live and walk out their discipleship of Jesus. And we, we want to honor that. We respect that. And yes, of course, we need to have those sorts of people. But there's also an element here. When Paul says, imitate me, Paul, I think, is also saying, imitate me in this idea of saying, imitate me to other people. Like, there's this reality that you as a follower of Jesus should be at a certain level, be able to say to someone else, imitate me, follow me as I follow Christ. And that doesn't need to be boastful or prideful or arrogant. But recognizing that, yes, you perhaps do have a long way to go, that you're still pressing forward, you're still pressing into to Christ, and you're constantly maturing and growing. But the invitation for every single one of you in this room who is a follower of Jesus is to be able to say to someone else, imitate me as I follow Jesus. It's not just reserved for like an elite bunch or a select group. Pastor Bob and I were kind of chatting through this. He was commenting on an earlier draft on this. And I was kind of originally saying that we should, like, it would be nice if, like, most Christians or more Christians would want to have this sort of attitude. And Bob was like, no, no, we want 100% of Christians, every single follower of Jesus, to be able to say at, at a certain level to someone else, imitate me as I follow Jesus. Now, where kind of the rubber meets the road with this is that the moment you begin to say to someone else, Imitate me as I follow Jesus. Now all of a sudden there's some responsibility that begins to surface. Now I begin to be accountable to someone else. Now I have to expose and share kind of the, the junk in my life and the areas of my life that maybe don't fully align with the way of Jesus. And maybe that's a little bit scary and that's a little bit intimidating and perhaps maybe that's why we might kind of be hesitant towards this idea of saying these words as Paul is saying, imitate me. So yes, we want to be able to have godly examples that we follow, but in addition, I think the invitation of the Spirit is to say, are we living lives that are worthy of being copied, worthy of being patterned, worthy of being imitated? So if we think about this from this, this question of how do we finish well, here's what Paul is saying to start us off. If we 
want to finish well, we need to, number one, imitate godly examples. And again, the inverse of that is be someone who is worthy of being imitated. Paul is saying, pattern your life after someone who is worthy of being imitated. Imitate them, follow them, learn from them, ask good questions, and live the kinds of lives where you can say to someone else, imitate me. Because now that responsibility begins to build. The opportunity for mutual encouragement and mutual discipleship begins to build. That we begin to say to other people, follow me as I follow Christ. But notice what Paul says next, verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Notice what Paul is able to do in just one short sentence. He's he's able to say in the same breath, with tears, with compassion, with this affection, there's people, number one, with tears, but they're also on this path toward destruction. They're, they're enemies of the gospel. See, the, both the courage to call out, yes, there are people who are enemies of the cross of Christ. There are people who are out there that are living their lives contrary to the way of Jesus, who do not know him, who live for themselves, and yet Paul is able to say this with tears, with compassion, And to see how Paul holds those two things together is another example for us. That we would not be the kinds of people that just kind of not have any compassion for those who are hurting and lost and on a path toward, Paul says later on, a path of destruction. But no, with tears and with courage. To recognize and see that, yes, there are those, Paul says the language here, enemies of the cross. These people are not the kinds of people, obviously, Worth patterning your life after. Now, what, what makes up? What is the, the kind of the, the resume, if you will, the, the example that Paul is saying not to follow here? Look at verse 19, because he tells us. He says, of these enemies of the cross of Christ, their, number one, their end is destruction. That they're not going to finish well. They're not going to be the kinds of people that have a legacy, a story, a heritage worth passing on and worth remembering because their end, Paul says, is destruction. And what's leading them to that, the next clause there, their God is their belly. What an interesting phrase. Their God is their belly. You know, this really has kind of nothing to do with what Paul is actually saying, but what this line, what this clause reminds me of is my one-year-old Juniper who's just discovered her belly button and so, like, she'll, like, pull her, her, she's one years old. She pulls up her shirt and then, like, pokes at it and then kind of does this, like, cute little giggle and puts her shirt back down. And then, like, we'll keep doing it forever as long as you keep laughing at her. It's just this self-discovery at its finest, right? Obviously, that's not what Paul is talking about. But what if I translated that phrase there, God is their appetite? Meaning, who these enemies serve, the enemies of the gospel serve, is what feels good, what seems good. It's the classic problem going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. The first humans see what is good in their own eyes and take for themselves. It's the human condition just on repeat. That whatever feels good, whatever seems good, whatever looks good in my own sight, that's what I'm serving. That's what I'm going after. Notice, Paul does not give like a Here's a checklist of seven things that make the, the, these people enemies of the gospel. That would be like, you know, our own wicked hearts would be like, okay, good, I'm not, one of those, I'm not doing one of those seven things. I'm off, the, I'm off the hook there. 
Paul is saying if there's any part of your, your life, any part of the way that you live in this world that is serving your own desires, serving your own wants, your own needs, Paul is saying you're on a trajectory. Remember he's saying this with tears. You're on a trajectory toward destruction. Likewise, he builds off this and says, their God is their belly and they glory in their shame. This reminds me of the, the passage in uh, the prophet Isaiah says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. This mixing up of morals, this moral compass that's just completely out of whack. Paul is saying, these people, these gospel enemies, these people that you should not follow, they're glorying in all of the wrong sorts of things, the things that should bring someone shame in the right kinds of ways, the things that should just kind of break someone down and say, I don't want to be like this. I don't want to act like this. I don't want to be known as this sort of person that mixes up my morals and just serves me. Instead, Paul says, they glory in this. They revel in this. This idea of glory is even like they, they almost brag about this. They want this to be known by other people. And Paul says, these are gospel enemies. And their minds, last clause in verse 19, are set on earthly things. The same phrase, set on earthly things, is also used in the book of Colossians and Colossians 3, where, again, Paul is just echoing the same idea, where it's all about one's own desires, all about one's own wants and needs, oftentimes sexual, oftentimes just selfishness in general. And Paul is saying, these kinds of people, watch out for them. They will take you away from discipleship to Jesus in such a way where you will be hindered in finishing well. So if number one, how do we finish well? We need number one, to imitate godly examples, but number two, what we just saw here, number two, avoid gospel enemies. By gospel enemies, remember, we're talking about people that are just living for themselves. Their God is their belly and their glory and their shame. But look what Paul says next, verse 20. But our... Us, the people of God. There's something different about us, he says. Our citizenship is in heaven. This, friends, is a very famous verse, but often I think this is one of the most misunderstood and misapplied verses, perhaps in all the New Testament. Sometimes when we come to this verse, our citizenship is in heaven, we tend to think that, oh, what this verse means is, you know what? I'm a citizen of heaven, therefore I'm just kind of passing through this world this earth is not my home, and I'm going to escape to someplace else someday when I die. Implication being, for the right now, I'm going to check out. I'm going to withdraw. I'm going to hang out with just my own Christian subculture and just go to church eight days a week. That's not what Paul is saying at all. See, I think what we need to understand and recognize is that sometimes we might import our own understanding of either citizenship or heaven into this line and then kind of read Paul through that lens. But we need to kind of step back and okay, ask, ask the question, what does Paul mean by citizenship? See, Paul, he's writing to the church in Philippi, obviously. And the church in Philippi, from what we understand, is predominantly made up of Roman citizens, people who are loyal to a T to Caesar. And Paul says your citizenship is in heaven. He's telling them, he's challenging them that your affections, your loyalty, your allegiance is not to be to Caesar and his kingdom, but to be to the kingdom of God and his rule and reign. That that's where your life is meant to be given over to. And when Paul is saying your citizenship is in heaven, if you were a Roman citizen, 
Your dream, your desire as a Roman citizen was not someday, I'm just gonna fly away to another place. I'm gonna fly back to Rome one day and go back to be there. No, your dream, your ambition, your desire as a Roman citizen was to live out your citizenship right there in the here and now in the place that you were already at, on your plot of land, in your neighborhood, in your sphere of influence, to bring the rule and reign, if you're a Roman citizen, to bring the rule and the reign and the culture of Rome to bear in your area of life. So when Paul is telling the church in Philippi, church, your citizenship is in heaven, he's admonishing them, he's encouraging them to not escape, to not withdraw, but to be engaged, to be present in the here and now. And to demonstrate and show the culture around you what it looks like and what it means to live under the rule and reign of Jesus. Your citizenship is in heaven, so live that out right now in the present. Show the world what it's like to maybe echo Philippians 2, what it means to be living in the same mind, same heart, same love. To consider others' needs ahead of your own. Demonstrate the radical love of Christ in your own context as a citizen of God's kingdom. That's what this call means. That's what the beginning of verse 20 means. And then Paul says, though, look what he says. We have our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, what's the, or who and who or what is the it there? Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await, and we're going to talk about this part in a second, but from it, What's the it there? It's heaven. From heaven, we await this Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul's not saying one day you're going to just kind of beam me up, Scotty, and go someplace else. No. From heaven, you are awaiting a Savior to come down here. This is why we pray every single week the Lord's Prayer. Your will be done where? Not someplace else. On earth as it is in heaven. From it. We await a savior. Paul is not saying, when I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. Paul is saying, this is my father's world. Let me never forget that though the dark may off so strong, he is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. The world that God created, he created it good. He's not abandoning this world. And the ground that your two feet walk on every day of the week, may you re be reminded that this is your Father's world and that he is coming again one day to redeem and remake all of creation. And this is why Paul says, from it, from heaven, again, we're in verse 20, we await a Savior. And Paul recognizes his need. We, we need a Savior to rescue us from, from sin and all the ways that we contribute to that, we, we need a Savior. We await a Savior. And he says, the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, this is not the perfect text for week one of Advent. We eagerly await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is wanting the church in Philippi to recognize, to see that in order to continue on in your discipleship, in order to live faithfully for the long haul, in order to finish well, you need to have a vision for the future. You need to have a vision for how this whole story ends. Because time and time again, all throughout Scripture, and especially in the New Testament, the way that the, the authors of Scripture, the way that the Holy Spirit has inspired the, the text to be written, for us to 
have an example to follow and to live lives that are worthy of the gospel time and time again. The pattern is have the end in mind and allow that to inform how you live in the present. Have the end in mind. What are you setting your affections to? What is your hope in? How do you imagine, based on scripture, this whole story playing out and let that animate your faithfulness now in the present? When Paul uses this language from it, we eagerly await. Like Paul is saying, like, you are on Christian pins and needles in the best sense. Eagerly expecting, longing for Christ to come. Longing for him to make all things new. Or to borrow the language from Acts chapter 3, the restoration of all things. Or the book of Romans chapter 8, where all of creation is groaning. Same phrase, with eager expectation and longing. Or the second to last chapter in our Bibles, Revelation 21. The new heavens, a new earth. The holy holy city is coming from what direction? Coming down, right? That same pattern again. Coming down from heaven to earth. Where we have this promise from the Spirit. There's to be no more death, pain, suffering, and tears. He will wipe away all tears. Friends, this is... As Kevin was just mentioning a moment ago, this is our story. The story of eagerly waiting for our Savior Jesus Christ to redeem and remake all of creation. And in the meantime, he starts with you and he starts with me. Remaking us. Reshaping us. Allowing us to be in the language of Paul in 2 Corinthians, behold, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. Right there. You are a walking, walking and talking little, bit, little piece of the future if you're a Christian. You are new creation here in the, the old age. So live into that reality now. And fuel your hope as you meditate and ponder and, 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 and look to the person of Jesus. We, friends, eagerly await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul tells us there's two things he's going to do here based on this text. Number, number one, transform our lowly bodies. It's no secret that our bodies, more times than we want to admit, remind us of sin and brokenness, and in the right ways, remind us of the full redemption that is ours in Christ. Friends, proper good Christian theology says that the body is not an afterthought. It's not something that's like secondary to God. No, God made us as embodied images of himself here on this earth, the physical is meant to be a display of his goodness and his love and his creativity. And so, friends, our future hope is not in this kind of ethereal, non-physical sort of bliss, but no, it's a very physical, fully redeemed creation, and that includes, Paul says here, transforming our lowly bodies, remaking and rehealing all of the wounds and areas and places of our stories where our bodies remind us of, man, I do live in a broken world. That things aren't the way that they are supposed to be. Paul also says, though, that he does this by the power, number two, that subjects all things to himself, meaning that there's coming a day 
where he will subject all things to himself. There's coming a day where he will rule and reign over all. And again, to echo Revelation 21, no more suffering, pain, death, or tears. Christian, that is your future. That is what we long for. That is what we anticipate. That's what we desire. That we would be in a world where God's presence permeates all of creation. That the, as the prophet Isaiah says, that the glory of God would fill the entire, the, the entire world. And then all of the things that derail us, that throw us off, your sin and my sin, death and pain and suffering, will be fully and completely removed and be subjected under the lordship of Jesus fully and completely. That's what we long for. That's what Paul says. You, Christian, eagerly await. And so, friends, as we think about this, as we think about, okay, what does it mean to finish well? What does it look like for you today to have a vision for your life with the end in mind? Paul says, number one, imitate godly examples. Number two, avoid gospel enemies. But number three, kind of what we've just seen here, don't escape. Eagerly await. I don't know about you, but there's a tendency, I think, in many of us to see the brokenness and pain and hurt of this world, whether on a macro scale, whether things that are happening internationally, or whether things maybe closer to home more personally. We see evidence of just the brokenness of this world in a myriad of different ways, and the temptation is to escape. The temptation is to withdraw. Maybe sometimes in innocent ways, and maybe sometimes in not-so-innocent ways, whether it's a substance or a person or an addiction, whatever it might be. And the enemy wants to keep you there in isolation and in darkness. The enemy this Advent season would rather have you hide and remain in darkness in your patterns of escape than to allow the light of Christ to shine and expose that. Friends, think about the pain and the brokenness and the relational hurt, the wars and the catastrophes of this world. The call of the citizen of God's kingdom is not to escape, but to use the language of Paul to press further into Jesus. And in Advent, we're reminded again and again that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That the invitation for, for each of us in this room is that we would not escape and hide in darkness and allow the enemy to have us be isolated from either the community of God's people or just even just coming before him in confession and repentance and having that exposed with his grace and mercy and kindness to soften our hearts that we would repent and trust and more fully trust in who he is and the grace that he offers. No, would we be reminded again in this moment, in this Advent season, that as we eagerly wait, we would not escape, but we would allow the light of Christ to expose and to reveal the patterns and places in our lives where we are tempted to withdraw, where we're tempted to escape, where we're tempted to hide in darkness. Because again and again, the mercy and the goodness and the light of Christ is there on offer for you if you would simply turn. So don't escape, eagerly await. Eagerly wait with anticipation and with hope and with desire. So that's why Paul says then, in verse one of chapter four, therefore my brothers, 
Stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm. Finish well. Finish strong. Imitate godly examples. Avoid gospel enemies. Don't escape. Eagerly await. Stand firm. Finish well. Now, I know something about you. Every single one of you in this room didn't get up this morning saying, in 20 years, I want to mess up my life. No one in this room gets up and says, I just want in 10, 15, 20, 30 years to my life to be a complete train wreck. No one intentionally does that. But if we aren't intentional, if we don't have this vision, this, this gospel hope of how God's redeeming all things and is coming again and that we are swept up and caught up into that story, if we do not have this intentionality, this vision in mind, then we will, as the book Hebrews says, drift away. So I want to just leave us with two very simple questions to kind of build in that intentionality, to build in that, okay, how do you finish well? Two questions to ponder and think about. Number one, who are you imitating? Who are you imitating? What kind of person do you look to for respect and admiration? And who do you want to actually be like? And kind of maybe the, the, kind of the inverse of that or kind of part of that same question is, are you living a life worthy of being imitated? Are you living a life where you can say with confidence and with courage and humility, to someone else, follow me as I follow Christ. Because again, the call is for every single one of us. The invitation is for every single one of us as followers of Jesus to live into that reality. But number two, what are you waiting for? Maybe better said, who are you waiting for? Now, friends, this Advent season, the Christmas season, is filled with so many good things to wait for, to long for, to be happy about, and to, 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 to celebrate. I mean, I, I am so looking forward to a couple weeks. My, my parents are going to come into town for Christmas and really excited to, to see them. I'm waiting for that day. I'm excited to go to the airport and, and pick them up and see them again. I'm excited to reconnect and hang out with some old friends in a couple months. Like, I, I, there's, there's all these good things that we have in life that we can wait for. So don't hear me saying those good things you should be ashamed of and, and not, you know, have any joy. In it. No, I'm not saying that. But what I do want you hear, to hear me say is that what are you ultimately, deeply, most passionately waiting for? Is it the second advent, the second coming of Jesus where he will redeem and restore and make all things new? Where he's going to transform your lowly body and bring healing to every single square millimeter of your life, fully and completely. Is that what you're ultimately living for? Is that what you're ultimately waiting for? Allow the Spirit to just bring things to mind, to sort through. What am I waiting for? So friends, that's the invitation. That's the call. May we be a people, as Kevin mentioned, that we together Together we would wait eagerly for the coming and the appearance of our great God and Savior, Jesus. So, Father, we ask. We ask, Lord, that you would do this work in each person here. That, Holy Spirit, you would 
you would change our desires and our affections in all the areas where we might be living for ourselves or longing for things more than you. God, would you send and shine your light into the crevices and places of our lives where we are escaping and isolated? God, would we be reminded of your kindness and your goodness this morning? So Jesus, we ask for a, just a deeper sense and awareness of your presence. Help us to see you more clearly and more fully. Would you build in us, deep within us, a deep hunger and anticipation for the day where you will return and set all things right. We long for more of you. Help us to long for you even more. We pray these things in your name. Amen.